Welcome back to the Mar Pigs podcast. Today our guest is Su Fang Chen. Also with me today are Boya. Hello. Georgios. Hi. And I'm Hannah. Su Fang is a science policy postdoc at the Engineering Biology Research Consortium, EBRC. Her work focuses on policies related to synthetic biology and biotechnology, specifically on how to advance the field to help fight climate change and make our future more sustainable. Prior to joining EBRC, she worked on low-cost biosensors for pollution detection and DNA-based programmable materials at Molecular Information Systems Lab, MISL, and Microsoft Research's Urban Innovation Initiative. Sifang received her PhD in Physics from the University of Washington in 2019. Sifang, hi. Hi, everyone. It's good to be here. It's good to have you here. So um, I want to start with uh, following up on your focus on sustainability. So how exactly can synthetic biology and biotechnology in general help with sustainability and the fight against climate change? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I think when people think about synthetic biology right now, it's, uh, you know, we think about how to uh, use the tools of genetic engineering to engineer organisms, right? Uh, like CRISPR, uh, there's a lot of sort of genome engineering when it comes to that. But uh, really, I think synthetic biology has a lot of promises when it comes to solving a lot of the climate and sustainability challenges that we have today. Uh, because if you think about you know, the biosphere, right, consisting of trees and soil microbiome, uh, a lot of that is very much responsible for helping modulate our climate, uh, helping clean up our environment, uh, very key to kind of, you know, keeping our environment clean uh, and making our world more sustainable. But right now, those particular ecosystems are also under threat, both from human activities and also from climate change itself. And so there's a lot of things that synthetic biology could do. So one of the areas that uh, has a lot of promises uh, that I think it's uh, quite apparent to a lot of people is that sector in food and agriculture. Uh, So food and agriculture Agriculture specifically, uh, when it comes to crop production, there is a lot of emissions that's associated with crop production, uh, some of it coming from uh, fertilizers. So the industrial processes of making fertilizers uh, is has a very large uh, emissions footprint uh, with a lot of nitrous oxide uh, emissions. And then also, as you probably all know, that uh, meat production is responsible for a lot of greenhouse gas emissions as well uh, from, you know, cows uh, metabolizing the kind of feedstock that they eat. And then uh, they emit a lot of methane through uh, enteric fermentation, right? And so uh, some of the methods that currently people are working on to reduce emissions in uh, agriculture include, you know, kind of using synthetic biology methods to engineer better fertilizers that will have uh, sort of less of an emissions footprint that kind of takes the symbiosis of of plant uh, and soil microbiome and uh, sort of use a more natural um, method uh, to fertilize these plants. uh, And that decreases the greenhouse gas emissions from fertilizing your crops. And then also there's uh, work that's ongoing, for instance, in uh, decreasing the amount of methane that's coming out from livestock production, uh, for instance, engineering the gut microbiome uh, of uh, cows or other ruminants, and also, uh, you know, making the feed to livestock uh, less likely for the livestock to emit uh, methane uh, as a result. And so there are some, a lot of other areas where synthetic biology could help. So another area is um, uh, in the area of sustainable fuels, uh, sustainable biofuels, uh, where there's a lot of advances uh, in that area. Uh, So in particular for uh, sort of heavy transportation. So when we think about, you know, transportation, a lot of vehicles today are being electrified. Right, and uh, they're running on these lithium-ion batteries, but then they have a certain energy density that's associated with them. And uh, engineering biology could, or synthetic biology, could sort of make biofuels that have high, 
uh, higher energy densities that could uh, sort of be used in transportations that need fuels uh, that have a higher energy density than batteries, for instance. And, and so there's um, a lot of opportunities in that direction as well. So I'm only picking a couple uh, sectors here where an, a synthetic biology could have um, a pretty big impact uh, when it comes to reducing emissions and then uh, helping sort of advance uh, sustainability initiatives. Um, so, so I think there's a lot of enormous opportunities uh, in those areas, but at the same time, there needs uh, a lot more research uh, in many of these areas as well. Of course. So when you say research, how far along are we on these different fronts? Like, is there a kind of timeline when we might start to see these make a big impact? Uh, I think, you know, given the urgency of the climate crisis, uh, it's very important for a lot of these research to move faster than, you know, they would have originally moved. Uh, for instance, when it comes to um, you know, these type of uh, fertilizers that I was talking about before, right? You know, a couple years ago, they might have been just kind of used as uh sort of more niche products where certain growers who are more sustainability or uh, climate conscious will be using these kind of products. But now we realize that because of how urgent the situation is, that you need to have more investment into the research so that the production of these types of new fertilizers can actually be scaled up further uh, to sort of an industrial scale to actually transform what the, the kind of agriculture that we have today and to drastically eliminate the emissions from those sectors. And so if the timeline before was unspecified or maybe, you know, 30 to 40 years now, you know, with all these climate targets, right, that we're shooting at 2030, 2050, uh, that, that that timeline really, really needs to be sped up. And that because all of these approaches come from synthetic biology and there are these concerns from the public around that kind of thing. Is this where you're focusing from a policy perspective? Like, are you trying to make it more possible for synthetic biology applications to get approval? Or is it more about speeding up the research and uh, increasing the investment? Yeah, that's a really good point that you brought up about the sort of public perceptions and concerns about synthetic biology. Uh, so I would say that my research is kind of encompasses both of those aspects. Uh, one is, you know, thinking about how we can engage the public uh, better, uh, how we can improve kind of the public perception when it comes to synthetic biology, genetically uh, engineered uh, products. And then on the other hand, also think about what kind of research do we need to actually push the field further forward so that we can have these sort of demonstration projects, right? Things that are at the demonstration level or things that are at the industrial uh, scale. Uh, and there is, you know, there's a lot of exciting research coming out of synthetic biology, but then, and then there's also a lot of startups that are, you know, now working on very exciting synthetic biology related products, but then there's still that sort of chasm of translation between academia and, and industry, right? And, and so how do we sort of um, urge funding agencies to provide more support uh, for that kind of translational research? Uh, how, and where should that money go to? What kind of research? Uh, where uh, sort of are the bio-industrial needs uh, that that investment should be directed? Uh, so, so it's kind of encompassing both, both uh, aspects of uh, what you just said, I think. So you mentioned uh, academia and industry. So I want to talk a bit more about your journey from kind of there to where you are now doing policy. So you started doing a kind of research with quantum and graphene-based devices. So, well, firstly, how did you come across molecular programming and what made you switch from what were already really exciting topics into this exciting topic? Yeah, so um, the reason... Okay, so I can start with how I got into... Uh, the work I was doing on graphene and sort of quantum computing uh, and then how I migrated into molecular computing because they were like all kind of connected. Uh, so, I mean, when I was in high school, uh, like I read a lot of sci-fi and in particular uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, sci-fi. And then one of the 
uh, I think, short stories that he had. It's called The Last Question. And it's about uh, these uh, engineers who, like, just over its, you know, over the entire span of human civilization, going from, you know, when humans invented the vacuum tube uh, computers and then to, like, the next generation of computers. And then I think the one coming after that was a biological computer. And then this whole time, they were trying to figure out this question of how to reverse entropy. And then uh, eventually, should I give spoiler alerts? Oh, sorry, spoiler alerts for anybody who hasn't read this story. You should go read it. Uh, is that you know humans finally solve this last question, and then they reverse entropy, and then there's like a whole new universe, and uh, and it's it, it's just a great story. And so so that was actually uh, quite formative to you know why I I wanted to uh, start doing some work uh, on computing because it seems like to me it was you know human civilization also progressed sort of along with our ability to do different kinds of kinds of computation and so uh, I was a physics major when I was an undergrad, and then uh, I was really interested in this whole idea of quantum computing because that was sort of being proposed as like the next generation of computers, right? That's going to advance our ability uh, for computing things by you know ma orders of magnitude. So, so that was really cool to me. So I started working on graphene, uh, which at the time was just I think was only discovered a couple years before I started this research, and it was really exciting. And then uh, continued doing that uh, into grad school. Uh, and so that's where I was in my first year of grad school. And so what happened with that lab was I personally didn't mesh super well with the lab. And um, uh, and and so, you know, for anybody who's listening, uh, if you're in grad school and you don't particularly like the lab you're in, it's totally fine if you want to switch to a different lab. And so I, I was still really interested in, you know, th these types of unconventional alternative computing. And then I read, I think, a Scientific American article about uh, biological computing. I was like, oh, wow, this is really interesting because I've never taken a biology class uh, ever, <laughs> uh, except maybe grade 11 when I was in high school. Uh, and, and so I was like, well, you can actually do computing with biology. But then also at the time, it's like, well, it's very natural, right? Because human com human brains are one of the, well, the most powerful computers that we know uh, in existence. And so uh, it was really interesting that you could sort of engineer biology to do computation. And then I looked up sort of UW uh, labs who are working on biological computing. And then I found uh, Garrick Seelig's lab, uh, who's my PI throughout my grad school. I joined his lab and then uh, he was working on DNA uh, circuits uh, at the time, and so I started a project working on you know DNA-based circuits and computing, and uh, so so that was uh, really cool, uh, and so that's how I kind of got into molecular computing, and so my uh, graduate pr uh, project, my PhD project. Uh, was on programmable materials based on DNA. So there's this concept of active matter and programmable material that was just really fascinating to me. Uh, being able to sort of trigger things and for them to transform in and sort of do these kind of spatial computing uh, using biological components, that was a concept that was really appealing to me. And so that's uh, why I chose my uh, PhD project to be this. And uh, when I was presenting my, this was during my general exam, uh, one of my colleagues from another lab came up to me and was like, oh, we actually have uh, this project at uh, Microsoft Research that we're working on these programmable materials that can uh, sort of respond to the environment. Would you be interested in joining us for an internship this summer? And so I was like, whoa, that's really cool. So, you know, like I, at that time, I was already sort of reading up more about climate change and a lot of these sustainability issues. I was really interested in sort of doing some research uh, in that area. I was kind of on the side volunteering with some environmental groups, but then there was not really a good way for me to combine those two interests of mine together. Uh, and so this was the perfect project. For me. So I was like, yes, I am on board. Uh, so I joined that group, which later became the Microsoft Research Urban Innovation Group. And so that first project that I had as an intern there was working on this colorometric sensor uh, that is able to detect uh, UV light and it will change color. Uh, based on the amount of UV that you're exposed to. And then we kind of made it uh, as a uh, 
kind of a artistic tattoo that you could just put on your skin. And we kind of calibrate it to so that you know people with different skin tones can can use it. Uh, so a lot of UV sensors, it's not super sensitive to people who have darker skin tones. And so that was one of the uh, like a really big part of this so that, you know, it's more accessible to like everyone. And, and so that project was just really interesting because there's that social aspect, the human computer interaction aspect, because we also develop kind of a, com um, a, a computer or a mobile app that will kind of look at the color of the UV uh, patch. So it can tell you the cumulative UV index uh, that you have been exposed to. And so, and so there was all these different aspects of, you know, the social aspect, uh, the environmental aspect and then sort of that computer science aspect. So that was really interesting. And then uh, then the next project that it was uh, affiliated with on that same team at Microsoft was working on uh, environmental sensor for uh, water pollutant detection. And so this was uh, the idea was using developing some sort of biosensors uh, to develop uh, to detect pollutants in water. Uh, and so the idea is that we want to develop these really cost-effective uh, sensors that can be easily deployed uh, to sense different types of contaminants in water. And the issue that we want to solve there is for a lot of cities, uh, especially cities who are sort of coastal frontline communities, uh, for instance, cities in Florida, right, uh, who are dealing with issues with um, stormwater runoff or sea level rise, there's a lot of flooding into the city. And with that comes a lot of different types of pollutants that come off of pavements on the roads. And you wanna be able to detect that. And uh, so cities don't have a whole lot of budget to do that kind of monitoring. And so when they do, it's very infrequent. And then when they do perform that sampling, so they literally send somebody out uh, and they will go to, you know, a lake or like a shore, and then they'll pretty much take the same sample from the same place uh, once, like every two weeks, for instance, and then that sample gets sent back to the lab. And so that whole process is actually surprisingly expensive because then that sample gets sent to a different lab. And then when you're trying to detect contaminants in water, you really want to be able to do this in real time because there's also certain chemical reactions that would occur as you're transporting the water sample from point A to point B to point C. And then as time progresses, you know, your measurements are just not as accurate. So we wanted to be able to deploy, you know, sensors where you know, we can measure it in real time uh, and it can be done cheaply. So that was kind of uh, the goal of this project. And, and so I was uh, very involved in that particular project, trying to develop biosensors uh, based on different types of biomolecules that can sense uh, different types of chemical contaminants in the environment, uh, and then developing kind of a prototype for that. Uh, and so, so there, um, that was kind of also my foray into a little bit, not really science policy, but being able to uh, more interface with people who are in the community. So in my capacity as you know, a scientist and engineer, a lot of times I'm developing things that's just in the lab, right? I'm like focusing here is a problem that I'm presented with, trying to come up with a, a, a engineering solution to this, but then without really thinking about the, the, the kind of human uh, factor that's in this. So a lot of it's to me was kind of abstract. And then, but for this project, because it's going to be, you know, we're, we're partnering with, um, municipalities. So we're going out to talk to people who are kind of on the ground and know these kind of problems on the ground. So for instance, one of the groups that we talked to was a, a citizen science project who are, uh, they, they, I think they patrol the base in uh, Tacoma and then uh, they kind of monitor the uh, ecology there. And so talking to them about what kind of problems they encounter and what kind of needs that they really, you know, what are the needs that they, they, they want to fulfill when it comes to developing a sensor, understanding that need, and then trying to incorporate that feedback into our design. Uh, that was a really eye-opening kind of experience. And there was kind of this whole new world that was kind of opened up to me. It was like, oh, there's uh, this kind of social aspect uh, to uh, science and to sort of technology development. And, and so 
I was really interested to wanted to explore that aspect more. And so that's kind of how through this kind of convoluted uh, trajectory, how I arrived at doing science policy here at EBRC. So like, I still want to be able to help advance the science, uh, but also at the same time, I think climate change is, and, and the climate emergency now is really, uh, it, it feels very urgent. Uh, and I want to be able to kind of leverage my scientific background to uh, help with that uh, in some way. And how does your work currently, like in science policy, how do you actually get um, to a position where you can put pressure on the lawmakers to actually kind of listen to you and implement correct science policies? That's a great question. Uh, so a lot of the work we do is uh, we do a lot of communication. And so that's not necessarily public communication, uh, which we also do, uh, but a lot of it is communicating between the policymakers and the researchers. Uh, so for instance, you know, the policymakers who are busy doing their policymaking uh, are not necessarily aware of the scientific advances that are happening, for instance, in synthetic biology, right? So where are, so as, you know, for instance, Congress is deciding where budget is supposed to go, uh, and that money goes to, for instance, the NSF, right? And then you have NSM pro program managers who are supposed to disperse that money into, you know, certain types of projects that they will be interested in. What should those projects be? And so we're uh, part of our my job and EBRC's job is to help these funding agencies identify what those research priorities should be. Uh, and that comes from, you know, the research community. Uh, synthetic biologists saying, you know, these are the research advances that we think uh, should be made in the next 5, 10, 20 years, but then there are all these gaps that need to be filled, and this is where investment should be directed to. So we're communicating that need to the policymakers. And also at the same time, there's information flow from the other direction. So the other part of our job is to communicate what's happening on the policy side to researchers. Uh, so, you know, you're all researchers, uh, you're probably not going to have a whole ton of time to look at what policy developments are coming out from, for instance, the White House, right? Or, or if you are, you know, like you don't have time to read those in detail. And so uh, we, we try to parse that information and then provide that information in a timely way uh, to researchers so they can sort of have an idea of uh, what is happening at the federal level when it comes to science policy. So you said um, one of the thing one of the things you said was um, about kind of advising on what kind of projects should be funded. Um, so like in in rocketry, for example, and interstellar travel, you've got this uh, this thing called like the weight dilemma, which is um, do you launch a rocket now to try and get to where you're trying to get, or do you wait a while um, for technology to progress? in which case you'll build a better rocket and you'd have been able to overtake the one that you would have launched 50 years ago. Is there a kind of similar thing with um, the kind of re the kind of research that we should be doing for mitigating climate change using Synbio? Um, like, because we could implement things right now if we wanted to, or we could invest that money into tech research which might, which might in 20 years time yield something a hundred times more effective. That is a really interesting proposition. Uh, and I have not thought about that before. Uh, but I would say, you know, the difference between that analogy, the, the paradox that you have just mentioned, uh, and climate change is that the former doesn't really have a timeline, right? It doesn't really have that urgency. If we don't do this in 20 years, we're still going to be fine. Uh, when it comes to climate change, that's not the case, right? The later that we take actions about any, you know, about reducing emissions, about mitigating emissions. Uh, and now because, you know, climate actions have been delayed for so long that we have to remove these emissions that's already existing in the atmosphere, right? The, the more we, we kind of have to catch up because it is not, the climate is not going to stay static, right? So the, the more greenhouse gases there are in the atmosphere, the more warming there's going to be. And then that, with that, there's that feedback loop and things are going to get worse. Right there's you know further climate events that that will happen, uh, and in addition to mitigation, which is reducing the amount of greenhouse gas that we emit and the greenhouse gas that's in the atmosphere, there's also climate adaptation, uh, which is responding to all those negative impacts that will come from climate change, and so the adaptation part 
I think increasingly is going to be a bigger and bigger portion uh, of our climate response. And so I think compared to, you know, the, uh, the rocketry thought experiment, uh, where there isn't really a, a timeline uh, there, unless I guess if there's an alien invasion, I really need to get off Earth. <laughs> uh, then here with, you know, the climate uh, issue, it's, it really is an emergency. And I think we, we, we need to sort of uh, identify where uh, the highest leverage areas are, where, where which technologies can make the most impact. Uh, and uh, not, not just in sort of the short term uh, mitigating climate change, which is very necessary. So I'm talking about things like, you know, carbon removal, right? So some, some of the technologies there you know, could potentially, you know, if you can draw down carbon very quickly, but then what are sort of the long-term sustainability consequences there? So you kind of have to think about that as well. But, but yeah, so my general point is that, you know, we need to invest money in, into those kind of research uh, ASAP. Um, and uh, so, so we, there's not really, uh, so we can't really wait uh, to, to implement uh, those kind of uh, technologies. Morphix is sponsored by Tethybit Nanosystems. Tethybit designs and produces DNA nanostructures as well as standard and customized scaffold DNA strands. They would be happy to set up a call to discuss your project in more detail. If you are interested, please visit their website at tethybit.com or contact them at info at That's Tillybit spelled T-I-L-I-B-I-T. So I'm wondering what other um, new skills required for you to be a, um, for, for you to transit from a scientist to be a more like policymaker postdoc. And I, I also wonder how was your day look like? For your job, like instead of doing science? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'll answer the first question first. What are the new skills uh, that I needed to kind of acquire to get into this job? I mean, when I applied uh, for this uh, postdoc fellowship at EBRC, I really didn't have any experience in science policy aside from the sort of experience in environmental uh, and uh, environmental monitoring and, and sensing research that I talked about before, and then um, my my time spent with doing some of uh, the volunteer work I did with climate uh, and environmental groups, uh, and I think a lot of it. So so I've seen this with a lot of people who are in science policy is that they get into it through this really circuitous route, and many of them are from you know a totally scientific background. Uh, they come from the lab often directly, uh, and uh, maybe they have some science policy experience under their belt because they have that interest uh, or they had the interest when they were in grad school. Uh, but a lot of it is people coming into this field completely anew, and then you learn a lot of things on the job. I think a lot of it is just uh, the the interest uh, in doing this kind of work uh, and the enthusiasm for it, and you kind of learn the rest of it just on the job. And so that kind of goes into your second question of what I do uh, on a daily basis. And so a lot of it is, I would say, uh, writing. Uh, there's a lot of writing, uh, reading, uh, reading up on all sorts of different materials, uh, including policy, new uh, research advances uh, in science and technology in the areas that we're interested in. Um, there's a lot of meetings uh, with sort of coordinating meetings as well uh, with different types of stakeholders, uh, researchers, people who are in government, who are in industry. Um, and that part of the job is actually really interesting because you really get to talk to people who are coming from pretty different uh, backgrounds uh, and they have different uh, point of views and different perspectives. And it's really interesting to, to me to make that connection uh, people from different disciplines uh, with different life experiences, and then trying to make the connection between all those uh, different areas of expertise uh, is actually really cool. Do you find that those people coming from different perspectives, are they receptive to what you're saying? Is there some kind of, do you need to kind of push policymakers and those stakeholders to take climate change seriously? Or is there a big concerted push now, do you find? Yeah, I would say, so for me in 
my job specifically, there is a lot when, when I do interface uh, with people, it's also a lot of times with researchers as well, uh, trying to uh, just meet with different uh, researchers who are in already in synthetic biology. Uh, and there isn't really a lot of convincing that needs to happen uh, because I would say, I mean, it's makes me very optimistic that there's a lot of interest within the synthetic biology community uh, to you know, work on solutions to, toward climate change. Uh, and so, so yeah, really uh, sometimes when it comes to, you know, uh, emphasizing the importance of um, coming up with, you know, different climate actions and, and approaches, it, it's it's like seeing to acquire, like, because uh, uh, they, they, they already know, they know the importance uh, of the climate uh, emergency and they, they want to work on it. And I think it's just identifying like where are the most impactful uh, areas uh, to hit. Uh, that's yeah. I wouldn't. I would say there's has not luckily not been a whole lot of frustrations when it comes to that. What's the uh, kind of highest up policy make you talk to like senator level above? So I haven't talked to a lot of politicians in my current work uh, just because I'm a postdoc. Uh, my, my boss will be the one who will talk to these politicians. Uh, we do sometimes have requests for information uh, for or RFIs from different levels of government. Uh, and this could be from you know the federal level uh, with uh, responses to requests for information to the executive branch, uh, from the state level, uh, responding to requests for information from the state legislature, uh, or sometimes uh, we have some requests at the international level as well. So this would be like intergovernmental agencies, for instance, uh, where essentially the policymaker would ask us for um, information on what synthetic biology could do for you know X, Y, and Z social issues, and what are sort of the upsides and the downsides to this. Uh, and the reason they would ask us is because we more or less are seen as a neutral party uh, who are representative of the synthetic biology research community. Uh, and so our opinion is sort of you know, uh, respected as a more sort of objective third party uh, providing this kind of uh, uh, information that's coming from the research community itself. Do you feel, um, I don't know how to put this, but do you feel listened to by the policymakers? Uh, I would say that from where I stand, it's um, kind of hard to do you know, attribution in terms of the work that you do in the policy world, uh, because sometimes the best you could hope for is that you see you know, a sentence that you've written as part of a policy recommendation is being quoted in a uh, policy announcement that comes out you know, from the government or some other organization. Uh, and you really hope that you get the audience right and that the people who you know, you're targeting are actually going to think about your policy and then hopefully they you know, think that it's a good idea and are persuaded and uh, you, they will try to incorporate them into their own policy framework. Uh, so you know, attribution, like I said, is kind of hard on liking academia where you kind of can get your paper or get your name being cited as uh, part of somebody else's work. Uh, here, uh, it's more like you know, you see your policy recommendation. If somebody thinks that this is a good idea, it's being incorporated as part of another policy announcement. Uh, so, so again, you know, like I'm still relatively new at this. Um, uh, a little bit less than a year uh, as a postdoc in science policy, and my experience is kind of limited here. So I would imagine if you you know come back in a couple more years, I will uh, have a different perspective and a different answer to this. Are there enough people, like say scientists, transitioning into policymaking? Um, and if there aren't, why might that be? And like, what can we do to change that? Yeah, anecdotally, I mean, of course, this is from, you know, my point of view. And right now I'm working with a lot of science policy people. And so my view is naturally going to be biased. And I'm like, oh, there's a lot of science policy people out there. Uh, but I think there is a lot more people who are interested uh, in science policy uh, because, you know, I think grad students nowadays and young researchers are really engaged with social issues. And there are a lot of social issues out there that 
need to be solved or have you know to be addressed or have attention paid to, and a lot of them can benefit from uh, people with a scientific background. Uh, because when you think of the scientific method, for instance, right, you're really coming up with a hypothesis, and then you're trying to collect evidence, and then you're trying to come up with a conclusion. And I think really good policymaking, in some respect, uh, should follow the scientific method in some way. Uh, when you're coming up with a policy proposal, you're really coming up with a hypothesis. You're saying, you know, X, Y, and Z is insufficient, and then instead we should do this. That's your hypothesis. And you try to gather a bunch of evidence, right? So it's evidence-based policymaking, right? COVID is a perfect example of that, that when we have these, you know, uh, massive global globe-spanning issues that science should be at the forefront of informing policymakers. Uh, and so, so I think it could actually really benefit um, the policy world, could benefit a lot from people with a scientific background. And I think scientists, uh, early researchers uh, are realizing that. They, they realize that, that there is a need uh, for their expertise. And so I think there is a lot more interest in this. Uh, but I would say when it comes to sort of engaging uh, young researchers into coming into the, the policy world, the barrier to entry is still a kind of high. Uh, because I think a lot of times when you're in grad school, there's, I think now there's sort of that industry track, right? That people are becoming sort of more aware that there's things outside of academia, but then it's still sort of, for instance, when I was in grad school, I didn't realize that science policy could be a potential career path at all. Uh, but only when I started reading about it, I was like, oh, this is perfect. Like, this is exactly what I wanted to do. So making those opportunities, you know, either internships, there's the AAAS fellowship where it gives scientists the, uh, the opportunity to work in one of the federal agencies for a year or sometimes Congress for a year uh, is, is a great opportunity. Uh, and But it's not necessarily available to all grad students. If you're an international grad student, then you're kind of out of luck. And so making those opportunities more available and then just some way of having grad students more aware that this is a potential uh, career path uh, is going to be uh, really helpful, I think, in engaging with people. And you might have, you know, a, a lot of people potentially who would be interested in this, and uh, but who just don't know that this is a potential path to take. Do you, at some point, miss traditional science? Yeah, I mean, I think I think I do sometimes. Uh, I don't miss lab uh, work. <laughs> I would say. Uh, I, I think. Uh, yeah, I think I've had enough uh, days pipetting, uh, but I do love read uh, reading up on you know new advances uh, in science. I mean, it's also part of my job, but um, yeah. But I think I really really enjoy the work I'm doing now. So um, so I don't I don't miss uh, traditional science. I guess uh, quote unquote as much. Yeah. So. Obviously, uh, policy work and traditional science are quite different day to day. But if you had to pick one main difference from before you went into policy, when you were doing more traditional science, and what you're doing now, what would that main difference be? I think the biggest difference is uh, depth versus breadth. Uh, so for when you're working on a research project or, you know, even a couple of different research projects, you're really doing a deep dive into that research. Uh, and you know, you're really sort of obsessing about the details about that particular research project and really thinking about sort of all the little granularity of that project. Whereas when it comes to science policy, it's a lot more of a generalist approach uh, because you sort of have to read up on a lot of different uh, subfields, for instance, when it comes to synthetic biology, knowing, you know, for instance, what are the new advances in food and agriculture? Uh, what are some of the advances in, you know, say, 
bioplastics, right? And then, so this is, I'm thinking of what I'm doing with climate and sustainability, and then making the connections between those two. Uh, and, and then, you know, a bunch of other subfields of synthetic biology. And so it's a lot more breadth uh, versus doing that deep dive. Uh, and it, you kind of have to be on that sort of high level, big picture kind of zoomed out view to make those connections. So it's uh, kind of a different, you, you have to put on different lenses, I think, uh, for the different types of work. Yeah. I would say that's the biggest difference. Do you think it helped that you've kind of gone through all of these different fields? You've started in physics, you've done some CS, you've done some bio, you got exposed to the sociological aspects, you did all of these different things. Has that been a massive help to you um, in doing this broad brush approach? Yeah, I think so. I think that it's kind of intertwined, right? My experience with being in these a bunch of different fields uh, I think also kind of informed why I am where I am now uh, is that I, I really wanted to, you know, be able to kind of keep up with research in all of these uh, fields and and then not really focus in one particular one. Uh, and I think the, the fact that I was kind of in physics and then I was in biology and sort of nanotechnology uh, it, it helps a lot with my current job because of that, you know, what I was talking about, that generalist approach to it, it, it helps me understand uh, a lot of these different fields a little bit better than I think if I was focusing on one particular one. Um, but yeah, I think it's uh, a combination of uh, just my interest and uh, my experience as a researcher. Uh, so what would your um, ideal future after all of these policy initiatives that you're you're coming up with get applied, treating the world with synthetic biology, what would that ideal future look like in, say, 20 and 50 years? Uh, so first, I hope that, you know, synthetic biology, along with other technology developments and policy initiatives, could enable us to transition to a post-fossil fuels world and can really help us meaningfully address the climate crisis. You know, for instance, with synthetic biology and biotechnology uh, enabling tran the transformation of agriculture and uh, enabling sustainable materials production, helping improve food security and uh, mitigating pollution. Uh, and I think second, uh, there's this idea of the bioeconomy, uh, which is essentially developing an economy around products that are made from biology or biotechnology and then integrating that into you know, our current uh, paradigm of uh, the economy. And you know how people talk about you know, the 21st century being the century of biology, right? Now that we have the tools to manipulate and uh, modify the genetic code. There's a lot of exciting advancements that's coming out all the time, right? And to me, the most exciting part of this is uh, the link uh, between uh, bioeconomy and the circular economy, and so how biotechnology could potentially enable uh, the world to grow more sustainably. Uh, for instance, you know, can develop engineered organisms to uh, recycle or upcycle waste products more efficiently. Uh, or to grow food with a much smaller environmental footprint. Uh, so enabling us to really be able to use natural resources in a more sustainable way. Uh, and I think finally, I mean, I would hope that, you know, this uh, 20 to 30 years from now, with all the advancements in technology and all these policy initiatives, we can really enable the world to be also more sustainable and equitable. Uh, and, and this, you know, like I don't have a good answer for this. And I think it just needs the, the uh, collaboration of a lot of different groups of people and, and some sort of cultural mind uh, shift of the mindset so that we're less exploitative, uh, both of, you know, people and natural resources. And I hope, you know, the, the kind of bioeconomy that we're developing now and I hope to see it flourish in the future could really enable uh, future growth to be more sustainable and equitable and, you know, lowering the gap uh, of income gap and also be able to enable us to use 
you know, natural resources uh, in a more sustainable way so that, you know, our environment are being, are, are sort of kept uh, in a better condition for future generations. So you mentioned kind of sustainable growth. Um, I wonder how do we solve the hard problems of, say, developing countries who they want to use their natural resources like they've seen the developed countries do, and, you know, they want to work deforestation, increase urbanization, this sort of thing, in order to to develop their country. But now we're kind of trying to tell them not to. What's the solution to that problem if there is one? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I think different countries, I mean, of course, are at different levels of development. And uh, for instance, you know, more developed countries are have, have different priorities, right? And if you are a country that is currently a low or middle income country, your priority, you know, part of it is going to be uh, trying to lower the rate of poverty, uh, trying to develop economically. And uh, that would require to some extent, um, potentially more, uh, exploitation of natural resources, but also at the same time, I think there is this view that developing countries are sort of making these progresses uh, in uh, at the expense of natural resources, which is in some cases actually not true. Uh, because if you look at the sort of environmental initiatives in Africa, uh, it's actually quite progressive there. Uh, so I think... Uh, was it Nigeria uh, has, or one of the African countries has uh, a, one of the most you know strict uh, limits on plastic bags uh, because uh, people re- realize that you know climate change is actually affecting the global south a lot more so than the global north, and as they're developing, they need to incorporate all these sort of more sustainable ways to develop their economy, and uh, it is much better for you know the long term if you're starting by uh, having these sort of more sustainable environmentally friendly economic practices versus ones that are more exploitative and so i think the the view that you know um countries who are in that phase of developing their economy and expanding their economy rapidly are doing so at the expense of the environment uh is there, there's a little bit more nuance uh, to that as well. Uh, and uh, of course, I think because developed countries have the ability to kind of um, put more money into advancing some of the technologies, for instance, in synthetic biology even, right? Uh, that it, it should take up uh, you know, more of that responsibility. And, and historically, right, if you look at the United States, uh, the amount of you know, uh, carbon the U.S. has emitted or carbon dioxide the U.S. has emitted is cumulatively the most out of every country in the world. And and so we need to do more. Uh, And yeah, so that's kind of my take on that. Are you sure there isn't some selfish part of you that's only doing this policymaking in order to keep the environment intact just so you can keep taking photographs when you go hiking? It's it's interesting that you asked this because uh, the reason I'm doing this kind of goes back to what I was talking about like way earlier uh, about Asimov's last question, that short story. And so a, my initial interest was really, I mean, it was in sort of developing new computers, right, unconventional computing. But then the other part of it, I'm actually really interested in space exploration. Uh, I think it's just, you know, it would be awesome if humans are sort of, uh, in other parts, you were enable interstellar travel and able to explore other parts of the universe. And then uh, the idea that human civilizations could keep propagating is something that's really appealing to me. Uh, and so I was really interested in also that space exploration aspect of it. And then part of the reason I wanted to work on DNA nanotechnology was, uh, and synthetic biology was this sort of connection with you know, potentially terraforming Mars in the future or something like that. Uh, but then the more I read about you know the climate crisis, the more I was like, well, this is the existential tra- challenge to our civilization propagating uh, into the future. And so that is an insurmountable challenge that we have to overcome if we want to continue expanding our civilization in a positive direction. And uh, so, so really, that's uh, 
I guess the question, answer to your question, like why I'm really interested in, you know, all these uh, approaches to help fight climate change, it's because of that. Uh, how do we develop our civilization in a positive and really sustainable way? Sustainable in the sense that we can sustain the progress and growth of our civilization into the future uh, and for, you know, generations to come. So after we do terraform Earth, where do you fall on the debate between terraforming Mars or Venus next? Oh, I think Mars is a much better target. <laughs> uh, Venus, you know, it, there's uh, Venus is climate change gone to the extreme, right? It's it's just uh, greenhouse gas out the wazoo, and it's I think it's a lot harder to. Well, I mean, I I know very little about about you know. Uh, engineering in space, but I, I would just say I think from what I've read, you know, Mars at least is a rocky planet. Uh, there is underground water that uh, NASA has discovered. There's, I think, they even discovered some surface water that's uh, on Mars during the summer uh, seasons, and so uh, that seems to be a lot more viable of a target. Uh, and so, yeah, that's where I will take my bias uh, is. Uh, Mars all the way. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could remember. I know that I've had some people make convincing arguments of why Venus might actually be the easier approach, even though it looks so much worse from, from the horrible greenhouse gas problems that have happened. But yeah, Mars definitely seems like a nicer place to go to. But, but of course, there's you know very little atmosphere uh, on the surface, and uh, Mars doesn't have a magnetosphere uh, either, so there's a lot of radiation on the surface as well, so there's all sorts of problems there. But um, if if humans do, you know, uh, manage to resolve climate change to uh, you know, avoid the the kind of coming crisis, then I think uh, space exploration is always just I think ha has a lot of allure uh, to people, and uh, it, it will inspire you know a lot of uh, folks. And I think we can easily terraform Mars because we're very good at making climate change happen. Right. So we're very good at like, putting greenhouse gases out. Exactly. So I think like, it's no challenge. Will you move on to policymaking of how to increase global warming then after decreasing? <laughs> yeah, it's all situational. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Stephen. Stay tuned to our newsletter for details on our next podcast episodes. And thanks for listening.